Welcome to One to One, the conversational marketing podcast dedicated to helping modern marketing teams succeed in a messaging first and privacy first world. In each episode, we'll interview a marketer who is winning with conversational marketing to distill best practices, lessons learned, and actionable takeaways. Here's your host, Benji Baer, VP of Marketing at Spectrum. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to and watching One to One, the conversational marketing podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Eric Huberman, CEO and founder at Hawk Media. Eric, thanks so much for chatting with me today. Of course. Thank you for having me. Yeah, a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to hearing about your experience building an agency, being CEO, seeing, I'm sure, digital marketing shift through many different trends and disruptions. And uh, I think before we get started, I'd love to hear you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, and maybe what a typical day looks like as CEO of Hawk Media. Sure. Yeah. Backgrounds e-commerce. I built and sold two e-commerce companies about a decade ago and then started advising and consulting for a bunch of large and small brands on just how to drive revenue growth using marketing. It was when Facebook ads were starting to get popular and like all these trends were starting within that year, basically. And a lot of bigger companies started to realize, oh, like I need to pay attention to this. And so I became sort of that navigator for a lot of brands and was consulting to help them figure out how to navigate it. And through that, over the course of about six months, found that the marketing landscape really sucks. And it's still not necessarily that much better. I've tried to fix it myself, but only so much you can do. Where it's basically, there's two options to execute marketing as a business owner. It's either hire a team in-house or hire an agency. And I found hiring in-house wasn't cost-effective. That's if you can find and attract great talent, which only so many businesses can really attract the best. And it's important in marketing because it's an infinite opportunity cost. And even if you somehow bring in great talent, you can afford them. Now you're operating in a vacuum and you have no idea what's going on in the market. And that's why every major company uses agencies. The problem is 99% of agencies have no idea what they're doing. And the few that are good tend to get really expensive, have long contracts, high minimum, something else that makes them hard to work with. And so the end result is basically if you want to get into marketing, you're going to either have to really cough up and be a big company or you're screwed. And that just didn't make sense to me. And so under the mission of accessibility to great marketing, being meaning let's be the best at what we do, but really easy to work with. I hired a small SWAT team of people to you know help these companies. It was like a Facebook marketer, an email marketer, a web designer, a fractional CMO, et cetera, seven people, and went back to these companies and said, everything's a la carte, month to month, cheaper than hiring in-house, but we can spin up what you need when you need it, and ebb and flows your needs change. And that's how we started. We turned nine years old on January 13th, and uh, we're over 200 people. We've worked with over 4,000 brands. And yeah, we've been able to really scale and grow. And so it's been you know, a fun ride. And now we have a, we're on our second venture fund. We've raised 25, 50 million. We have a financing arm. We have an AI tool that basically running over 8,000 companies, marketing data and revenue data through it in real time to be able to benchmark companies, have a real estate family office, have a bunch of other stuff going too. Nice. Wow, there's so much there that I, <laughs> I want to unpack that I'm sure we'll get the opportunity to do that. So to start with, I think one thing stuck in my mind, you've mentioned like the infinite opportunity cost of hiring a bad marketer. I'd love to touch in on that. I think before you do that, you obviously zeroed in on a pain that everyone feels, right? Like hire in-house versus go go to an agency and like the specific reasons that's so painful for either business owners or marketing leaders at companies. So you know, you mentioned some of the reasons for that, but can you dig into a little more detail there and and why you did what you did? Well, I think the biggest fallacy is the idea that it's binary. Like everyone, I hear it all the time and I've heard it for a decade. Like, oh, we're taking everything in-house. Why the 
fuck would you take everything in house? Like, why do you think like there's obviously pros and cons to both? So why not take the pros of both and try to eliminate the cons? Like, as someone that runs an agency, do some stuff in house and do some stuff with an agency. And those needs may ebb and flow and change as your company changes. And that's okay. And that's why we built this to be flexible. Like I built this because it's what I wish existed when I ran my own e-com companies. And so the idea that it's binary is crazy. So I think that's number one. And then, yeah, in terms of pain points, like this is a hard thing to hear, but like, again, 95% of companies out there are not sexy. People will take the job. They might enjoy the job, but like the best marketer out there doesn't want to work for your company unless you are the sexiest company out there. Like if you're not Nike or Dollar Shave Club when it was in its heyday, the best marketers are not running through your door to interview. It's the people that need a job because they didn't tack it somewhere else, like generally, honestly. Or you know, maybe you're lucky and you find that unicorn, but is that really what you want to bet your company's marketing on, which again, has an infinite opportunity cost, meaning there's always more money to make and better returns to make. There's infinite opportunity and returns on sales and marketing. Now, you know, obviously there becomes limitations where it is infinite, but like good luck getting to that point. But going with someone mediocre is a huge cost, a huge opportunity cost. And that's the issue is a lot of these people, instead of hiring a great Facebook agency, where like for us, as an example, we spent a couple hundred million dollars on Facebook. We have a full team there. We interact with them. We know what's coming down the pike. We know best practices. We know as they're changing. We saw iOS 14 changes first. We knew how it affected hundreds of companies at once. We found fixes for it very quickly. You can't compete with that internally with a Facebook marketer you found off the street that has five years Facebook experience. Like, and you're frankly going to pay them more than you're paying us. So it's like, it's a ridiculous thing to try to build everything in-house. That being said, what we usually say is if you need high-level expertise part-time, that's when we come in. But when you need low-level expertise full-time, we're expensive. Like we are a markup on heads. So like there's an efficiency to that when we can have a person work for, you know, 10 hours on your company and 10 hours on another, even though you're paying a markup, you get an efficiency. But if you need someone that's just going to grind out tons of content, do it in-house. Social media management, again, unless you're just looking for someone to manage that and get it off your plate, we're cheaper from a cost perspective for than hiring someone full-time on almost every service. But sometimes you want someone that's in it all the time, and that's not when you're going to hire someone like us. And so that balance is what we find with a lot of companies. And we we volunteer it. We say, you should do this yourself. We're going to keep this. And like that's our ongoing relationship. But trying to build it yourself is really tough. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you touched on one thing, especially for marketers, right? That idea of like high expertise in a particular domain. It's difficult to always find like the perfect expert, but that's exactly a good solution to externalize some of that or to bring in like an external contractor or an agency. But then if you need like a core function in-house, I've also found like from a content perspective, sometimes content is one of those things, especially in certain areas where having like consistent expertise and help really helps to establish thought leadership. I mean, you mentioned Facebook. I think that's you also mentioned iOS 14. I'd love for you to kind of walk through some of the the ways in which working with a bunch of companies, like the challenges you saw iOS 14 coming down the pipeline. I think that was one that obviously scared a lot of marketers. Uh, it continues yeah. to scare a lot of marketers. There are obviously ways yeah. to solve for it. But what are some of the things that you found? Go back to my first statement about marketers and 99% are full of shit. And you land on why people are having so much problem with iOS 14. Like, it's so funny because I have this conversation with business owners and then you can see like the epiphany where it's like, so iOS 14, what did it actually do? It eliminated cookie tracking from Facebook on Apple products. Like that's what it did. So few things, what does that affect? Well, one thing it doesn't affect is people's spending habits on Facebook. I don't care if you can track them or not. People still click ads and they still buy shit. 
So the idea that you think that your revenue from Facebook actually dropped 80% because of an iOS update is crazy. And it's not what happened. And that's what's really fun about this. And now you have companies like Triple Whale and uh, other one that's doing really well, Northbeam, that show this. But what happened was Apple cut off Facebook's tracking. That's it. The ads didn't stop performing because of it. And so what we've seen is just use third-party tracking. It was a direct assault from Apple on Facebook. And the belief is it's because Facebook started talking about being the WeChat of the US in the one-stop shop, which would take power away from Apple. So Apple said, fuck that. Let's go to war with Facebook. And Facebook can't really fight back because if Apple bans Facebook on Apple products, Facebook's done. So it is a crazy sort of battle of the titans right now because Apple has the power and they took away some of the power from Facebook. And the only because of tracking. And so what's fascinating about this is Facebook doesn't want to admit it. So it has this new algorithmic tracking that is completely inaccurate that so Facebook used to track very accurately on a 28 day look back window. Someone clicked an ad, you could track for 28 days if they made a purchase. So in e-commerce, the average sales cycle across e-commerce is about 28 days. That's about average. It's four to five weeks, but depending on the price, depending on the type of product, but 28 days is a fine average across the board. If you have a higher price product, that would cause problems. Like $300 products can take three months to purchase. You're still only tracking 28 days. A lot of those types of products had to have their own tracking to be accurate. Now, they shrink that from 28 days and being pretty accurate to seven days and not accurate. So if you're a company that your entire Facebook returns have always been reported on a 28-day window and all of a sudden they're reported on a seven-day window, like how do you think that makes your returns look? Yeah, pretty bad especially because the average person takes a little while. So it's not linear. It's not like you're seeing one quarter of the turns. Sometimes you're seeing less than a quarter of the returns. And so the irony of all this is because there's so many idiot Facebook marketers out there, they literally just take the platform as gospel and go, well, it says your ROAS is 0.6, so I guess it's not working. And you end up with Facebook having declining revenues and the average Shopify site in Q2 and 3 of last year declining by 20% because everyone just pulled off Facebook and said it's not working because they take numbers as gospel not a smart move. If you just took a second to get third-party tracking or even just look into the back end of Shopify, you can find where did people originate, let's say a Facebook ad, and what is the average purchase cycle and when, you know, and you could actually get these numbers. We had one client like this where Facebook was reporting a 1x ROAS pretty much evenly, which obviously doesn't make sense because you have a cost of goods, et cetera. Like you're spending a dollar to make a dollar, but you have costs, you're screwed. But when we ran the numbers in the first month, they were actually making 15 times it just Facebook was only tracking one. So they thought they were spending 100 grand a month to make 100 grand. They were spending 100 grand a month to make $1.5 million. And they're about to turn it off. And so we've saved a lot of companies from doing that. We've also had a few clients that just said, I don't believe you. You think you're smarter than Facebook. You're idiots. And they and their businesses are gone. Like we've actually watched people literally self-sabotage their business because of a Facebook dashboard. And so that is the main change with iOS. Again, consumer behavior, consumer spending was an all-time high in 2022. People didn't spend less money. People didn't stop shopping. They just went to people that actually stayed aggressive and I guess, frankly, in the wrong business. And again, trying to this is the problem with trying to do it yourself. Because if you don't see, oh, wait, these numbers, like these companies and the revenue is still doing great. Like, oh, the companies that stuck with Facebook are still crushing it. It's not a problem with Facebook. Something like we have that context. If you're doing it on your own, like I talk to clients about this sometimes. I'm like, let's say it's a t-shirt company. It goes, hey, we're bringing it in-house. It's like, yeah, I try to show sew my own t-shirts in my garage too. Why would you do that? You're going to do a much shittier job and it's going to cost you more money. Like, good luck. That's going back to that. But yeah, the big iOS thing is like, again, Facebook and Instagram ads are performing just fine. TikTok is really caught up. TikTok is also doing very well. 
But we have tons of clients making tons of money still on those platforms in real time. Yeah, I think you touched on so many, so many good things there. I think the fact that it was also just like a a land grab Apple to Facebook. I know a lot of marketers have talked about that, but it was also an insane PR win on the part of Apple that the entire thing was framed to the public as a privacy play, which is genius, genius PR. Um, I think Google Google said they were going to get rid of cookies because of privacy but all they were trying to do is create their own cookie. And when they figured out they couldn't do that, they just canceled the whole plan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think also you touched on it so well as well, right? It's gone where the days of just kind of funneling money into Facebook without understanding anything about the platform. I think what was so powerful about Facebook's business manager and marketing there at first was that it made everybody and their grandmother able to create ads and run campaigns and feel like they were on top of things when clearly a bit more nuance was necessary to understand what's really going on. And you're absolutely right. The The problem is a measurement problem, right? So it's not right. that the revenue isn't there and it's not that there still aren't great opportunities on Facebook. But if you have the mindset that you can only do things you can measure and that's all that matters, then you're going to make some pretty terrible decisions. And I think on Facebook in particular, you called out a few companies that have like substituted or bringing out third party pixels and like cross channel attribution where there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in the market. I mean, I think a lot of those things touch on how you see the market. But if you could summarize like what the state of digital consumer marketing is right now, as you see it, what would what's the state of play? Yeah, funny enough. So we launched in September something we've been building for seven years, which is Hawk AI, basically to benchmark the market because we saw things like this, where someone would also say to us, like, my friend says they're getting 35 times their money on Facebook ads. Why are we only getting 10? It's like, you're getting 10 times your money. You're putting a dollar in and getting $10 out. You're complaining? Like, and I don't know who your friend is, but they're lying to you or they're spending $2,000. Like, Nobody's making 35 times their money and spending 500 grand a month. That business doesn't exist. That person would be the richest person in the world. Like, it's not how this works. So it's, you know, and again, once in a while you get a good campaign that does that too. So the point is we wanted to have benchmarking so we could actually look at what is the market actually doing? And now we have it. We have 8,000 companies marketing data in real time and revenue data, and we can see. And what what happened in terms of like speaking to e-commerce specifically, last year was a rough year because everyone compared it on the year before. The year before, we printed 40% more money. Everyone was stuck at home for half the year and they spent a lot of money on stupid shit. The problem isn't just that it was an anomaly of a year in terms of spending. But like, for example, we have a really big bike brand we did all the marketing for for years. And 2021 was absurd. Everyone bought a new bicycle because everyone was stuck at home and going outdoors and all that. 2020 and 2021, I'm one of them. I bought, I got a new bike, my best friend, my brother, and my business partner, we all got mountain bikes in 2020. Like, it's a lot of people did this. And well, what happens once you buy a bike and everybody front loads all this stuff, they don't buy a second bike the next year. So while it was amazing at the time, normally it would have been spread out a little more and they would have sold some bikes last year or some bikes this year, but then everybody rushed to buy. And the bikes are an example, cars are another one, homes are another one. Like, And there's a ton of products like this that people just loaded up on a bunch of hobbies and a bunch of things. And then they hit 2022 and it's like, well, I got everything. Like, I, I bought a bunch of new shit. I don't need new shit. And so you have that. You have the comparison to, again, being stuck at home. You have the fact that we printed all these stimulus checks and things that went into the market. And you're comparing to that year. And it's like, that's absurd. If you draw a trend line from like 2018 or as far back as you want to go, but you can even go to 2018, trends are great. Even with 2022, there's just a spike in almost every company. So what we saw last year is Q4 of 21 actually was started to get a little soft. Then Q1 was not good over year over year. 
Q2 was not good. Q3 was not good. And people got scared. You start hearing recession, blah, blah, blah. We had negative GDP growth, which again is a year over year metric. But then Q4, which numbers haven't come out yet, but we have them, was actually great. You know, we went from down 20% year over year, almost the entire year to up 16% in Q4. And so for not just like our clients, meaning what we see globally. And so when earnings come out this quarter, I think you're going to see everyone go, what recession? Oh, you already saw Jamie Dimon on Friday say, I know I said a hurricane was coming, but it might be like a small storm. It's like, oh, is it a small storm now? That's interesting. You're you're like a weatherman. (laughs) And so... (laughs) And we've been saying this, like what's going to happen is Q1, this quarter, I think is still going to be volatile because everyone's going to be trying to make sense of everything. And then Q2, everyone's going to realize that 5% Fed rates don't affect anything, that we were measuring year over year. And now that we're measuring 23 over 22, things will look good again. And everyone's going to get back to growing their business and doing normal. It's not going to be like the craziness of 20 and 21 where everybody could have just made money, but it'll be business as usual, I think. And I think that'll start happening in Q2. And I think that's important. So when you asked about marketing, the thing that hurts marketing the most is fear. It's not actual recession. Consumer spending doesn't decline that much in a recession. It's just people still buy shit. It's fear of something coming. And so once you're in it, like 2008 is a great example of this. Like the bottom was like mid 2009 and then it started recovering. Like, and it took a while, but it started recovering. So it's like, once you hit the bottom, businesses are fine. It's the finding that bottom that's tough. And I think we're right around there already. And I think that you'll start to see people reinvest, people start to grow, marketing start to be a thing, people start to get optimistic again. And I think that's coming soon because frankly, I've done a lot of research on this. There's the average recession last 10 months. The longest was 18 months, which is 2008. We've already been seeing declines for a year. So, and there's nothing telling me that this should decline. I just had this conversation with another founder. I think this might be the first media-driven recession in history. Like nothing is actually pointing to recession on the metrics yet the media just wants to talk about it all the time. And I put this on Twitter. I was like, when is the last time the media predicted a recession? The answer is never. It has never happened. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a lagging indicator, I think, as far yeah. as media sentiment yeah. is concerned. And, and you also... For a lot of business owners, like, because business owners, by nature, you want to do better than you did before. That's what makes good entrepreneurs. If you didn't have a great growth year last year, which are most businesses, because they were comparing to 21, you struggled, you stressed out, you're pissed off, you're trying to figure out what to do. And shrinking a business is really tough. And if the average e-commerce company shrank 20%, well, there goes any kind of margin, you're probably having to cut a lot of things, you're stuck with a bunch of extra product, like, it's a painful thing to shrink, because you're trying to forecast and everybody forecasted growth for 22, because you came off a trend of massive growth. And so that's what's painful. That's not happening. again. You've spent a year with everyone talking about tightening the belts and, you know, cutting costs and being efficient and something's coming. Well, so we're already prepared for it. Like, that's the other thing is we've never prepared as a country for a year for a recession and then it came. It blindsides you by nature. So that's why, again, I think that everyone did what they needed to do and we're fine. Yeah, I think you touched on quite a few things as far as marketing, you know, leaders, business leaders are concerned about is that, you know, that question of efficiency, but a lot of it, like you're saying, is driven by, I guess, short-term lookbacks, like the yeah. the lack of historical perspective. When the, yeah. like the, even that inflation numbers, like to me, the number we use for inflation, like CPI, it feels like it's politically motivated because it's like, we're not talking about how inflation is changing month over month and is it growing or shrinking? They're using a 12-month lagging indicator and in how it shifts, where it's like, if prices went up 8%, like just went up 8% for the month, we would talk about inflation for a year based on how we measure it. Where it's like, no, 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 just like last, you know, let's say our inflation, like July of, or January of last year, it went up 8%. It's like, well, inflation is 8%. And that would stay the way it measures. And that's what's crazy about it. It's like, no, 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 it was this 
like quarter that went really crazy and everything came back down. But because we measured on a wagging 12 months, we talk about it for a year as part of like our economic view. And it's like, that's not really what's happening. We are not experiencing inflation right now. Prices are not increasing right now. They increased already and we're still talking about it because of the way we measure it. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the marketing side of things too, right? like you're saying that there's a lot of fear in the market. That's the biggest risk to any marketer being able to actually to do well. But in this case, obviously, it's a bit overblown and there's a lot of optimism. There's a lot of reason to expect a lot of growth. I mean, in terms of going back to marketing a little bit, you mentioned benchmarks that you're collecting across 8,000 companies. I think that's really, really interesting thing to dive into because it's impossible to think about performance in a vacuum. I think the first thing that marketers ask about when they're testing new channels in particular is like, okay, what are the benchmarks? How do we perform against those benchmarks? We want to know that we're we're doing at least better than the average. Um, Can you talk to me a little bit about what kind of benchmarks you're measuring across uh, the different companies that you're working with? Yeah, it's every type of media benchmark. So it's click-through rates, uh, CPM, CPCs, conversion rates, and then a lot of retention metrics, lifetime value, uh, repeat purchase rates, just revenue metrics, conversion, site speed. You know, and, and it's building out every day because we're adding new insights every day and new APIs. So right now we have Shopify, Google Analytics, AdWords, YouTube, Facebook, and all of Meta, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and I know I'm missing one, all integrated. And we're about to do Amazon Clavio PostScript and continue to build it out. Okay, well, so you have the full gamut of kind of acquisition, retention, like channels, and you're connected into your customer data across all of those channels, basically. And so you're aggregating that data and building out like benchmarks for verticals. What does that look like across? Is it just all e-com? Or do you split that out versus like... It's, I mean, e-coms included, but we have a lot of non-e-com SaaS businesses, hospitality, like we have basically the industry categories of Google. We have a lot of indexed in all of them. Nice. So that's an amazing, amazing treasure trove of data in terms of what you're doing with that, right? So like, can you give us some insight into not what you, also what you're doing as an agency, but maybe what you see happening in the market? Like what are the trends that you're seeing across channels? What do you see work incredibly well right now? What are you seeing people pull back from? Are they pulling back for the right reasons? You know, give us a bit of an insight into the benchmarks that you have. Well, that's what's funny is like, so Facebook, we saw CPMs go up, but click-through rates go up, basically pair of So like, it's not, it makes no difference. If I can get the same click-through rate with any one of, like, I just, I'm making the same money. So we saw that, which was super interesting. We're actually putting out a benchmark report soon, a pretty broad one on all the going into 2023 benchmarks and what people should look at. And what we're seeing is, Pull back on Facebook spend. Google is about even. Google has been performing fine for people. TikTok really up and coming. TikTok, there's been a huge surge in and we're seeing the returns there. Like it's becoming, it's almost parody with meta now. And so, you know, the concern there is I'd say more geopolitical, but from an advertising standpoint, it's a great platform. And when you say parody, that's in terms of spend or ROI on the channel? ROI, spend is getting there. We're recommending parody spend. They're not everyone's there yet. Most people are not takes a while for people to get comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. And are you seeing kind of divestments in other channels, broadly speaking, or not so much? Snapchat's like struggling. It's really hard to find Snapchat or get Snapchat mm-hmm. to perform. Like, I wish I'm an LA guy, so like, I really wish it was doing better, but it's just not right now. Mm-hmm. And um, what about, yeah, I know you mentioned you're also plugged into like Clavio, like certain email channels and things like that. Obviously, you know, you mentioned iOS 
14, there's male privacy protection. Have you seen that just affect no. measurement? Same thing? Yeah. Are you still seeing the, exactly. the ROI there? It's more of a measurement thing. Yeah, email still works just as good as it always has. And I've seen, I think for the past decade, I've seen e- or, uh, headlines about email dying and it just never does. <laughs> it's been good. In fact, COVID, we saw a surge in email. Now we're seeing it back to normal, but it's normal. SMS, I think, is a huge channel. Like we invested in Postscript. Uh, we're investors in Quavio and Postscript. And mm. I'm a big fan of what Postscript's done on SMS, which is why we went in. And what I know because of their business is like they're both growing like crazy. Like the email is still a great channel and SMS is a huge up and coming channel. Yeah. Have you had any experience with messaging channels like Instagram messaging, Facebook Messenger? Yeah. Do you do you use those at all? Because I do. think SMS is an interesting one. Because yeah. you can, a lot of the same kind of retention approaches are possible through messaging channels. Yeah. But SMS is obviously very easy to implement in the US. I think when you look abroad yeah. and you think about right. telecommunications fragmentation, it's like exactly. a very different beast. Um, yeah. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of the yeah. messaging space. Not Messaging outside of SMS, not as effective. It's usually fine. Like it's one of those things that it's like, if you can manage it, it's a worthwhile, you know, it's ROI positive. But SMS, we've seen like, 98% open rates, you know, 30% click through rates, like the engagement on SMS is absurd when you do it right. Yeah, I think that's what we've also seen in the messaging space. I think the SMS one is an interesting one because it's positioned so close to like abandoned cart to kind of like traditional email style campaigns, where it's already like very, very high intent customers and like trying to leverage like certain triggers that email is very commonplace. But yeah, interesting to hear that you're so bullish on SMS, because I think that is also kind of why we're bullish on messaging in general and that we're seeing those kinds of open and click-through rates as well. And also as just like a consistent experience, communication channel, like acquisition channel, it's pretty incredible uh, what's going on there. Yep. Maybe, you know, taking a little step back, you know, like on the personalization side, I think that's another big thing everyone is talking about, right? Like in a crowded market, customer experience wins, personalization will differentiate you. Are you seeing initiatives across the companies you work with to kind of lean into that? Or how does that look for you? Yeah, it's been a buzzword for a while, but I honestly haven't seen, at times you can see it be effective, but I think it's actually overvalued. I mean, it makes sense fundamentally that like being custom will get people's attention more. But from my experience watching the data, like people find their own shit. Like you have to be easy to navigate but trying to, mm-hmm. to assume that you can actually determine based on people's interactions with your company what they actually want to see, I haven't seen it be that effective. Like the actual execution hasn't been there. And so, you know, listen, AI is going to get more and more complicated. It's going to get to the point. Like, So I started looking into AI and building this platform eight years ago now and started really studying how AI could affect our industry. And like my favorite thing used to be like, you're going to be traveling to Portland from LA. LA where nobody, I actually funny enough because of our month, whatever the hell they just called this thing. I bought rain boots for the first time since I can remember because I went out to my yard. It was, my yard was flooded last week and I stepped in. I was like, oh shit. So I went to grab shoes to wear and literally the only thing I had that were waterproof shoes were sandals. So I'm out in like 11 o'clock at night in freezing cold rain in my flip flops because that's all I own. So I bought rain boots. That being said, there's a time coming soon if Facebook can get off their ass or one of these platforms where it's like, we noticed you're traveling to Portland. It's going to be raining. You live in LA. We know your purchase history and you know you haven't bought a raincoat in forever. So we want us to have one ready at your hotel. That personalization, super interesting. The, you seem to buy a lot of black pants. Do you want to buy these black pants? Not interesting. And that's what we have right now. So the idea of it, solid. The execution, I don't see it yet. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting call out, right? It's about like, can you really provide assistive, like predictive experiences that are going to make a difference in the purchase journey? 
yeah. I think what we've seen in the messaging space that is more on the personalization side, right, is not the like assumption of preferences or behaviors based on kind of like anonymous aggregated analytics data, but more the value of direct one-on-one -on -one interactions like automating flows that actually allow you to capture zero-party data on people's preferences and then kind of like personalize their experience. But I, yeah. I can totally see why that whole... I mean, that's a, a perfect example of like, okay, you've bought this product. Does this similar product interest you? That's not really where it's going to make a, a big difference as far as experience and then revenue. You know, in terms of what you see in the space right now, are there like specific, you know, I mentioned channels at first, but like, are there particular types of programs or like approaches to marketing that you believe in that you're working with companies that you're seeing incredible performance from? Yeah, it's funny enough, it's the same shit we've been doing for a decade. Because why is like, the beauty of what happened last year is so many amateurs got out of the way that like, this is a great example. And I, I won't name them now, but they have actually agreed to let us like be a full case study. We had a company that was scaled to about 60 million in revenue over the course of a few years from nothing. And great business, great people. And then they decided to hire a CEO and a CMO and build this exec team who had their own people and fired us as their agency. And we deal with this. And they they basically fixed something that wasn't broken. We were doing great. We were growing great. And they decided to pivot and do all this stuff because they we watched this happen with another brand that like I told them point blank, you're going to regret that. Like the numbers, I'm like, are there is there anything wrong with the numbers? No. Is there anything wrong with our fees? No. We just think that it'd be better to do this this way. I'm like, okay. And they're like, but maybe we'll come crawling back. And I'm like, I've done this enough now. When your business declines 50% because you fucked up and made a stupid decision, you can't come crawling back. You don't have any money anymore. You're done. And so these guys, we ended up making, they came crawling back. So like eight months later, the company has declined 66%. And they were in a giant hole, massive debt, et cetera. And we made it work and got them back on track and just ran the same playbook we were running a year ago and it went all back on track. Go figure. The only ads they had performing were ones that their new agency were running that we had already created. All the new shit they had tried to do was all just wasted money that went nowhere. And then they got into deep discounting to try to keep up on revenue and blah, blah, blah. And we've seen it over and over again. So my point being, this is a company that we had already done well that was in decline. That All we did was run the standard playbook we've been running for a decade. And boom, it came back. And I'll do a shameless plug since I just thought of it, but wrote a book on it, The Hawk Method. But yeah, it's literally, we have a pretty, my favorite review I ever got on this book. And sadly, the guy deleted it because I think he heard me talking about it was, I don't get it. It's just modern marketing 101. It's like, yeah, like the basics honestly work. If you have a good product, you run the basic scalable marketing approach and you have good people that know how to use the platforms, you should be successful. Good product is the variable. If you have a good product, people will come back because repeat purchasing, word of mouth, all those things are really what drive business success. You can only you can't buy every customer every time. That's what Casper tried to do, which is why they're in trouble. Yeah, I think that's, you know, I think the more time you spend in marketing, the more you realize that a good product is the baseline on which everything else rests. And you can have the same playbook. You know, there are so many tactics, strategies that will work well. But fundamentally, you also have to have a relatively good product. Um, otherwise, you're building it all on a house of cards. And it's funny how it always kind of comes back to that. I mean, as far as you mentioned, obviously, a lot of media channels like optimizations, you obviously have a lot of campaign managers on your team that specialize in different channels, other and maybe this is in the Hawk method, shameless plugs are fine, by the way, no worries. Are there like particular approaches to like how you work through brand how you work through like creative and iterate on that with companies? Yeah, it, yeah. And yes, it is. But so feel free, you can get it for a, I think, buck on Kindle. But yeah, the whole point is like, that's not so it's not a money maker. We like getting it out there. But the branding side, how I look at brand, a couple things. One, I think a lot of people make the mistake of target market and brand thinking it's the same thing. 
And your brand is the aspiration of your target market. It's not your target market. So, you know, my, the best example of this that I heard a long time ago was if you, anyone remembers Shoe Dazzle, which was Kim Kardashian's shoe subscription, then Rachel Zoe joined as well. They had like, it was Kim Kardashian. So you would think like it'd be the coastal New York, LA fashionista wearing these shoes. No, the most concentrated customer, the best customer they had, most consistent were mid 40s African American women in the South. Like that was the customer back when you could target that way. <laughs> that was their customer that was the most lucrative because that's who is respiring to be a fashionista in the coastal areas because people in LA and New York had access to all these shoes and had access to everything. And they were like, we don't need shoe dazzle. That's a good example of the difference between brand and target market. And you need to understand it. I believe most of the time it's what is my product or service? What aspiration is someone trying to achieve by buying it? And when I say aspiration, it doesn't need to be grandiose. It can be, I have holes in my socks and I want socks that don't have holes in them. Like it can be very simple, but like, what is the main compelling reason people buy my product over our competitors over not buying anything at all? Because if someone's completely content and not trying to aspire for anything, they're not buying anything. Like if I'm not thirsty or not believing that my health is at jeopardy, I'm not buying water. If I'm not feeling like I have a lack of knowledge, I'm not buying books. Like it's just, that's, you know, obviously, again, motivation could be different. Your friend launches a book, you buy it, maybe you don't read it. But the point being, most people buying products or services are looking to get something from them. Well, what is that aspiration that they're trying to achieve? Be that brand. You know, for us, frankly, our customers are aspiring to be hard-hitting, fast-growing entrepreneurs. What helps that our company has been that because we can be the aspiration for our clients. And that's like, one example. Like, you know, it's, but why do people buy running shoes? They want to be healthy. So be the healthy brand. Talk about all sorts of different health aspects. Be that, you know, brand for certain running shoes. Other running shoes are trying to be fashionable. So be fashionable. Like that's what you have to figure out. And that's the way to think about your brand. And I like personifying it. Who are they trying to be? Be that who? That's the best way to build a brand from my perspective. Yeah, I think that's great advice as far as really getting to the the foundation of what is aspirational about why someone is making that purchase and then doubling down on that. I mean, we've talked about quite a few different points to wrap things up. I'd really love to hear kind of five years from now. I know it's hard to predict given the pace of change in digital marketing, but what do you what do you feel like the future looks like? What are the things that you're most excited about? You mentioned the benchmarks, you mentioned doubling yep. down on parts of AI. Like what is that? look like to you and why? So again, my vision, and I think it'll be here easily in the next five years, chat GPT is probably redundant at this point with everyone talking about it. But that kind of technology is what I've been waiting for, because I figured if I can have all the data and knowledge to educate something like a chat GPT, you can start to have automated marketing strategy. And that's where the base of Hawk AI came in, why we put AI on it. It's not just a marketing thing, because right now it's just benchmarking and insights. But we want to get it to the point where it's literally can make changes for you and actually manage your marketing. And that's what we're building out. I think that'll come. I think we'll be there in the next five years. And yeah, I'm really curious to see how that AI sort of how that changes jobs in general. Like, thankfully, people adopt things pretty slowly, because if people were to adopt ChatGPT as fast as it could be, there'd be a massive job loss. There is a lot like, you know, the sort of lower level white collar worker is going to be like a blue collar worker soon where it's like robots and machines are going to and it's easier with AI because you don't need physical equipment. Like it's going to be interesting to see you know, mid-level lawyers, low-level lawyers, you know, again, copywriters, things like that. Like AI is going to give a lot of it a run for their money and it's already there. So it's like now it's just a function of adoption, which again, thankfully people are pretty slow, but it's still going to come. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, a very good point for us. What we see like having 
operated in the natural language processing space for a while too. It's also very interesting to see like when you combine these large language models, the large training models like ChatGPT, but it's obviously about what kind of input do you provide it? What kind of training data do you supplement like that model with? And so when you start injecting things like, you know, and we're in the conversational space, if you start injecting things like, okay, a database of customer intents that you already have, mapping that to things like product feeds, how do we like explain to people exactly what they need based on certain intents? Like, how do we map responses based? There's like so much interesting output that comes out of using those types of open models, but then combining it with proprietary data as like a training method and input that I think you will see like an explosion in a lot of companies starting to leverage this technology, even if people are adopting it a little slower than you might think. I think, yeah, it's going to come after a lot of different jobs, but it's also going to then elevate unique insight and like unique perspective and value over like mundane repetition of so many things that we see everywhere anyway, because I think that's where those models will fall short is in in the creation of something new, right? They can only give you what is already there. So yeah, it's going to be an interesting time in digital marketing. Eric, thank you so much for joining today. I've really enjoyed your chat, your perspective based on your experience in the field. If people want to learn more about you and kind of follow your journey, where should they go? Just add or slash Eric Huberman on any social platform, super easy. Okay, great. And you have the book, The Hawk Method, that came out recently. So if anyone's interested, I also recommend checking that out. And yeah, thanks for listening to the podcast. If you want to learn more about Spectrum and what we do, of course, go to spectrum.io or check us out on LinkedIn. And thanks again for listening today. Thank you.